Dad Bod Rap Pod. Another week, another episode. And this week we're talking about retail, really. Uh, Hip-hop retail, as it were. And unlike other things that the millennials are killing off, hip-hop retail seems to somehow still be holding on um, in the modern era. Not going the way of Mervyn's. uh, (laughs) Records are... What do they say? There's like a trend piece every six weeks or so. Records right. are cool again. Right. That's been true for at least the last 10 years. Right. Yeah, there's definitely been a vinyl resurgence, and I would attribute that to hip-hop um, in large part in DJ culture. It's so today's program, we're going to be talking about uh, one of the most iconic hip-hop retail outlets, which would be Fat Beats. Right. The uh, shop and the distribution. And we have a, a an, an interview that kind of gives us the the backstory on on how that came together and how they've sustained. That's the miracle to me is that in 2019, a brick and mortar hip hop shop can still be viable. Well, just to clarify, it's like been like six different hip hop shops, and so right. like um, as Eclipse will get into in, in the interview, they had their original location. And then they moved, and then they opened up a bunch of stores, Amsterdam, right. um, couple, J- couple of different ones, Atlanta. I never went to the Atlanta one. Um, but then they actually just kind of moved the flagship out to L.A. recently right? Um, and kind of repositioned the whole brand, which is funny because Fat Beats is such a New York thing. Like, totally. It just like, screams yeah. New York, and like the stuff they put out, what to me was very closely aligned with like the underground hip-hop movement. Like mm-hmm. That's when you first started to hear the name. You'd see it on the back of the yeah. of the records, and they had the distro. The mm-hmm. distro has that iconic green tape mm-hmm. with their name on it, and it's just like I had got so many boxes with that tape on it when I worked at the store. Um, it really meant something like that. That was a stamp of like, oh, this is probably dope. For totally, sure. That's fat totally. on it. For sure. And it's Are, just intertwined with all these legendary characters who were there. Like, totally. That's their spot. I didn't ask uh, Eclipse about Percy P. I oh, it was like the, no. The, that was going to be my question. If we asked like six <laughs> questions, that was the seventh. Yeah. I, yeah. But I kind of wanted to be like, because I asked him the question like, you know, you're there these cats are like ciphering in there would you have to be like hey man move over some guy needs to dig was that kind of the thing with percy p and just be well, like can you just hang out outside and sell sell record store you know sell records outside of the record store it's like oh that's right it's a record store he's kind of like if someone did that at my record store i would kick him out right you know what i mean it's you're soliciting essentially so we didn't get into it so funny so please refer back to if you haven't listened to our episode with uh percy p he really breaks down how his kind of career resurgence started out in front of fat beats Mm -hmm. when he's Mm -hmm. selling tapes and running into Mm -hmm. to rappers and such out there and that's really how he like came back to prominence uh was from being fat beats adjacent did they ever put out any of his material that's, uh, a, that's an interesting question. I don't believe Through so. Stone's the throw distro did. because Stone's Throw was distributed uh, by Fat Beats. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but the long Persever- way around. Is yeah. the album, right? Persevere, I believe, the is the name of the album. Perseverance? Perseverance. Yeah. Got it. Perspiration? Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Perception. Yeah. <laughs> so, you yeah. Call, you could just like have 10 albums and they could all be the same. Totally. Pod, essentially. Dave, what's your favorite record store? Favorite record store. Uh, shout out to Needle of the Groove. Of course. Um, but obviously, I mean, you know, we're Bay Area cats, dude. So, uh, Groove Merchant, dude, number one in the world. Yeah, for Nate, sure. I'm really? sure you can elaborate on that. Really? But just historically speaking, 
And you know, when you set foot into a record store, it's like going to a a book a bookstore or something. You're just automatically overstimulated in the best mm-hmm. way. Totally, mm-hmm. and uh, option paralysis. Totally, but I mean, you know, Groove Merchant, you're like overstimulated, and you kind of feel at, at home a little bit. It, it's so dope. I mean, you know, shout out to Cool Chris as well, and I'm sure Nate can elaborate. I mean, we had. We spoke with uh, Domino, who lived up at who yes, lived there for a right. minute. I that's mean, one of the craziest stories totally. we've heard on the podcast so far, where it just really resonated for right. me, who spent a lot of time of my life in record stores. I'm like, <laughs> hold, hold on, hold, 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 hold. <laughs> you lived at Groove Merchant, right? No, mm-hmm. More to the point, in Groove Merchant, like that was insane to me. And it was when the original guy, um, whose name I can never remember, right? Um, Lane the Attic dude, right? Uh, Ubiquity. Ubiquity. Yes. Um, owned, owned the shop. So that, that's crazy to just have someone living there. Mm-hmm. Right. But right. anyway, what about you, Damon? What's your favorite record store? My favorite record store um, is a is a spot that in true barrier fashion no longer exists, which was the bomb hip hop shop. Oh, um, yeah. In SF. And so mm. as a as a young, you know, 18, 19 year old, my guy, uh, my homie Kenny got his license early. And that was our thing. We used to load up in his Colt and drive to the city, barely could make it up hills. And we would hang out at the Bomb Hip Hop Shop uh, in part because there was this dude who was working there named Madchild. And he was like, dude, I'm just I'm this rapper from Canada. Like, I'm, I'm trying to blow up. I'm just working here in the record store to kind of get out here and survive. And. We literally sat down and chopped it up with with Mad Child of Solo members. Wow! For hours on end, he just a crazy, entertaining guy. I don't think we bought shit, like, <laughs> but he was just so engaging and so wanting to talk to us about hip hop. And definitely, as a you know impressionable eighteen, nineteen year old, there was just something ab- something about it. And I mean, I think they had like five records and like a couple fat caps. It was a true hip hop shop <laughs> for sure. You when know you what I mean? When you could do that kind of thing and have a business, yeah. Like you're, was that you're affiliated here's... with the magazine? Is that Dave Paul's yes. right. bomb magazine right. yep. hip hop shop? Yeah. Okay. And also the bomb compilation was mm-hmm. a big deal for us in our uh, in our hip hop development. So being there and kind of interacting with him and as an aspiring MC, I'm like, you know, he was like, hey, I live out of my car sometimes. Like if I can't find. Mm. Uh, a couch to surf on. No wonder mm. you're so mad. Mm. <laughs> ouch, ouch. <laughs> One of my favorite Canadians. So that I would say that was definitely, um, you know, kind of because of the connection. Uh, Nate and I worked at Streetlight Records in San Jose um, for for different stretches, and I always have an affinity. Like if you say Streetlight Records, I know how it smells. <laughs> like I, the, the memory. <laughs> It's like, yeah, it's like dusty records and weed and butt and all the in between. And so I, I definitely have fond memories of that. But same, um, you know, maybe a surprise to some. I was I was never a super digging type of dude. I was I'm I'm not I feel inadequate in the presence of real record store dudes. <laughs> whenever I whenever I'm in the record store and cats are like talking about shit and digging, I'm like, Meh. I used to get those like Pete Rock records that was like all of his samples on one record. Like I was, I'm that guy. I want the work done for me. Uh, Nathaniel, you are a record enthusiast. What is your favorite? I'm a record enthusiast. It's hard to pick a favorite. Um, I I would probably say that Groove Merchant is is my favorite record store because it's the best record store and right. like it's, it has such a cool lineage and I really like hanging out there. Um, I don't get up to SF as much as I used to, but. 
there was a time when you could go to I'm gonna I don't know if you guys ever went to this, but beneath the surface, yeah. San Mateo. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. I've been there. Yeah. That blew my mind when I was like seventeen, eighteen. Yes. I bought like a Cholo Lancinco, like hand burned thing because it's like oh the other guy from of mexican descent has a record right um i remember i can't remember the guy's name but i I would run into him from time to time shane shane thank you um i believe he went on to work at gorilla union which threw Mm -hmm. those rock the bells things so i'd still see him every once in a while if Um, i'm remembering the right guy also also a great barber is he he actually and it it, he has this second life as like a like a top-notch barber wow shout out to shane shane nesbitt if i remember yeah yeah that's right um, so they had like, um, mail order and they had like just everything I was into. I remember, uh, getting Aesop rocks first stuff there. Mm. And just like, this guy just knew everything. He was like the underground hip hop head of all time. And Absolutely. he had that like very welcoming vibe Absolutely. for the And heads. he's one of the few folks, um, because hip hop shops were an era, right? And as a rapper, the main connection to hip hop shops was, it was a place that you could put your stuff on consignment. Yes. So if you were an independent MC, you had no connection to distribution, you would literally drive around to all these different hip-hop spots and put shit on consignment. What I will say about uh, Beneath the Surface and uh, Shane is that he was one of the few that actually paid out. That's cool. Yeah, like... Like once it's sold or they just, he'd just buy them off you and deal with buy, it himself. Exactly. He'd, he'd just buy them off you off of you, um, like kind of almost sight unseen, in which I really appreciated about him because what you would do at these other shops is they would like sit there and you come back and be like, did any sell? And they just be like, "Eh, nah. Right. (laughs) Right. And it's like you, is it, is it here though? Yeah, exactly. No, also no. no. (laughs) So, um, so I, I have a couple of stories about that. So this, I've never told this on the podcast before. And for obvious reasons, you'll hear why I had a relationship as the hip hop buyer at Streetlight with Freddie Smith from AWOL Records. Mm-hmm. So these are, this is Sacramento gangster yep. rap. Yep. Um, a bunch of different artists, but primarily Sibo. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to tell all the details of the story, but. For your protection. Yeah. One time he called me from jail. Nice. Yeah. It was one of the craziest days of my retail life. So mm-hmm. we would, we, Sibo and like, you know, uh, Marvelous and all that stuff like mm-hmm. sold well for us. Like that mm-hmm. we were, we were a good account for them. I think probably like Dimples in Sacramento, which is a small chain in right. the Sacramento area, which I heard is closing. Yeah. Um, was probably like their main account, but like for the South Bay, us Rasputins, we were, we were the spot. So right. he would come on his runs and he was a very charming guy, like kind of that slightly menacing but funny like cool dude energy right and then the trips down would get a little bit more frequent and i would just be like nah we're good nah we haven't sold out a gas chamber like you know we're fine on that no we really can't take any he's like ah but i drove all the way down here and i'm like yeah yeah but i didn't sell any so right you know right and then after a couple of those yeah one time he called uh, from the county jail, dude, and I was just, I was scared. Like, I was like, I don't want to be involved in this, was my main my main thought. I was just like. You're like, you know they taping. Yeah, I can't do anything for you, man. Like, we are good. Like, I don't know, I don't know what you were expecting. Like, I think he was to expecting bail, me to, Nate. like, buy a, like, flat, a box of SIBO CDs, and he would have someone drive them down, and I would write a check, and he would go back. Because wow. I don't know if you remember this, at 50, at Streetlight over 50 you had to write a check, check yes. everyone hated that yes it's like you have to get a manager involved and only certain people can sign the checks and they, they would like 
only sell me seven CDs at seven, so it would come out to forty nine dollars, so, so that they, they didn't could, have didn't to, have to get the process. check. Like yeah, yeah. it was just such like being a record buyer in that way was not only just with the customers at the buy counter, like you have to like appraise their CDs and it's like you're judging Such judgment. their music stuff. And I fully was, um, but with the, the, the rap cats, especially it's mm-hmm. like, it's their business, but it's such small increments at a time. And yep. it just got, it's too complicated, man. It's not worth it. Like for, for such a small hustle. Totally. It's yeah. just such a, you're weird. You just get involved with these weird people and their needs. And I that literally go out to people's trunks and be looking through merchandise um, so anyway, that, that's my Freddie Smith that's dope. story. I did not bail him out of jail by buying SIBO CDs. Um, it was one of the weirdest days He's of my life. He's still there, bro. Come I'm on, like, man. I'm like, I got to go to lunch, dude. I can't handle <laughs> this. Like, I have a college degree. What am I doing with my life? Um, and then I don't do you Do you know JDC? Um, distribution they have uh, the egyptian lover catalog oh yes amongst yep. other records yep they were the guys they always had like a traveling salesman guy and they would go literally out the trunk like well into the 2010s they might still really? do it yeah really? the guys the guys would like, drive literally around out the trunk yeah sometimes it would be the the head of the company sometimes he'd have a salesman it'd always be kind of like a stoner dude um sometimes it was egyptian lover himself like when he right. would come to the shows he would always have his stuff ready to just like, CDs, put on consignment or to CDs buy in out. The trunk. Um, records too, okay, right, which don't right. do well in car trunks, which I tried to express to them <laughs> many times. Um, JDC did like um, disco twelve-inch edits of gotcha. a lot of stuff, gotcha. so they had like yeah. flashlight, you know, disco right. edit, uh, cutie pie, twelve-inch. Right. Like they had a couple of things that we would carry, and some of their stuff would do well for us. So. That was always an adventure, buying records out the trunk. What types of trunks are we talking about? Because I always, when you say out the trunk, I always imagine a Cadillac. I right. never think of like a Honda Civic right. trunk. Like my trunk wouldn't be like a sexy trunk to get some merchandise out of. That's hilarious. Uh, it really depends on the thing. In a perfect world, it, it would be like an old cop car, like something from like oh, Mannix or something, okay. right? Like okay, a, American like muscle a, car model. Yeah, like a huge trunk, like you a, know, regal. A, a late era sedan or something like that. Most likely it was it, it was a normal car. Um, well into my streetlight tenure, I would have all the guys from Living Legends mm-hmm. uh, numbers mm-hmm. in my phone, and they would always give at least give me a heads up before they would come by, which mm-hmm. was really helpful. But like Eli was hella cool. Like he, mm-hmm. we would chop it for a minute he his cds sold um and he would come by um sunspot sunspot jones a little bit yeah. rude yeah uh but yeah, yeah, like you know he knew who he was and he just wanted to get the transaction over with it right. wasn't that cool right um who's the other guy lucky uh, lucky lucky was cool yeah. he was hella cool yeah he was like a, a like he seemed fun you know what i mean the other guy just seemed angry um the grouch before he moved to hawaii would come down a couple times it yeah. was like they had distro through like city hall or something mm-hmm. which would have like all the mac dre and all the like kind of like more like gutter bay shit sure but they still would prefer to do it themselves it's like well, cut out the middleman well they living legends in particular um really overlaps with my kind of coming of age as a rapper in the bay area and they are the trailblazers of that scene of the independent, take your product to every store. They kind of invented, almost invented that type of hustle. Right. Um, and I think Mystic Journeyman, uh, Sunspot Jones, are like you were like the, the progenitors of that. They used to put out a little zine, um, unsigned and hella broke. Like they had little, like really, really low budget concerts in, in Oakland and such. And so they really kind of made like that underground, I would say like consignment chic. 
Like you, <laughs> you weren't you weren't a real MC if you weren't like hustling your tapes and CDs amongst all these little hip hop shops. And for a time, there were a number of shops. Like we had Elements was a was a shop in San Jose. Um, you had record stores like Star Records that would still carry consignment. That's another San Jose shop. Um, and so there was like this network of spots all over the Bay Area that you could potentially, in theory, um, take your product to. And that was how you sold pre-internet. Right. And are you saying some would front on you? Like, oh my was it God. common for you to oh, get like absol- ripped off by absol- these stores? Absolutely. The ones that were like hip hop shop slash smoke shop were the ones that were just, you weren't ever going to see your product or money right. ever again. So I, I, I did a couple of those. Um, you know, like I say, uh, below the surface always paid. You know, the the savvy buyers after a while were like, ah, we don't want, you know, we don't want too much independent hip hop material. There was a brief period where there was like a, a, a market for it. So, you know, shit, I remember driving to Berkeley and, and to hit Rasputin's and, and Amoeba and all these places. And was Leopold's still, around? When Leopold's you were was still, up. still yeah. around. It really, Telegraph in Berkeley was the was the the spot so sunspot jones and them would be out on the street like when they stopped selling the the joints inside they would just set up like street vendors totally and be rapping and selling their stuff dell would walk up and it was like this wild scene and people would just kind of hang out and freestyle and do all these things so it, there was a place and a time where these like hip-hop retail spots again kind of pre-internet were really the only place to interact with the culture in that way and that's where you got your graffiti videos that's where you got the breakdance videos for a short time i was working as like a rep for cloud magazine um selling magazines to these different places um and so it was like this really dense network and then like everything else you know places started closing after the internet comes out the whole model changes on how people interact with music online music comes napster all that and so it's fascinating to me that Fat Beats was able to ride that whole thing out and it's for still sure. around. For sure. Did you ever go to any of the shops? I did. I've been to Fat Beats in New York, tried to sell them my stuff, and they were like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, no, no, sir. I can tell from that cover we don't want no parts of that. That's um, funny. So I, I went to, I've been to Fat Beats New York. Um, I briefly w- went into Fat Beats LA. And I mean, it. it it's everything that you would expect having seen. I have a fet on on my laundry hamper, which I've had for 25 years now. <laughs> I've had Happy anniversary to your laundry thank hamper you, as well. Thank you. Lasted longer than my marriage. Aww. So uh, my laundry hamper has a huge, mungus Fat Beats Atlanta sticker down the side of it in kind of that Braves, Atlanta Braves tomahawk. Okay. Um, and it's still on there to this day when I go – to wash my drawers, which I need to, um, <laughs> that shit is still there. And I'm just like, it's wild to me that this shop is still around and really, and really viable. Yeah. Um, so I went to the LA when I spent a summer in LA, I went to the New York, which was kind of like, it felt, it had this feeling of like going to the Mecca kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it's as a record store, it was not an amazing record store. It, what it, what it had was new rap, but if you could get those records other places, right. like, you right. could you like right. they had the same records in San Jose as they had at the Fat Beats right. in New York and everything right. was up in those like kind of like displays on the wall. So it's like, oh, that's cool. Like 
you know, there's a Talib Kweli record, but like I could get that anywhere. So it's, I didn't it's not feel a rare the need to anymore. buy anything there. It was more yeah. going and getting flyers. I'm too shy to actually like network or shake people's hands. So I just like go in there, be hella quiet, right? grab some flyers, your head flip down. through the records and then cut out. And then for me, I just had this crazy experience. But, uh, you know, to them, I was just this guy who didn't buy anything. Um, the best Fat Beats experience of my life was I had a really crazy time. Um, I went to Fat Beats in Amsterdam. Like the day after I graduated from high school, I went on this European backpacking trip. God damn. So me, my this girl I was involved with at the time, and my two cousins met up in Amsterdam. And, um, you know, I was like super into weed back then. So sure. we like we would go to the coffee shops. We would buy the weed. We had this amazing hotel room where there was four beds and none of us really knew how to roll joints. And it was like a very joint based society. So we would just get the weed, go back to our hotel room and then practice rolling J's and that like so see funny. who could like roll the best J. And like, wow. so we did that and we would like get enough for the day. And then we would go out to the coffee shops. We would smoke. We would go to the art so museums you, you, you and stuff. So you could bring your own into the coffee shop? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you're supposed to buy it there, but I don't remember. Who knows? We were, right. like, smoking in the park. You know, did, have you ever been there? No. Vondel Park is their central park, and we're, okay. like, the only idiots, like, smoking in the park. That's, like, what we would do, like, in Golden Gate Park or something. Right, right, so right, we're, right. we're, like, taking our country, our, our customs there. Right. And everyone's just looking at us like morons. Ugly Americans. Exactly. Um, there happened to be a Tibetan Freedom concert. Sure. So we went so to So we're that. talking 98. Yeah. Uh, 99. 99. Um, and yeah, it was like Alanis Morissette and Ben Harper. I thought the BC boys were going to show up like the whole time we were there. Uh, there was a Tom York solo set that was really cool. Like well before he was known for doing that. Oh really? Yeah. So that was cool. (laughs) Urban dance squad played. That's probably like the worst show I've ever seen. I was just like, what the fuck is this CNC music factory, (laughs) European bullshit? Like, Anyway, Some good Euro trash. Yeah, we I was misinformed about what that concert was going to be like, <laughs> but we were the only ones smoking in there. It was like in a really? warehouse on kind of okay. like the Am- the outskirts of Amsterdam. So they only smoke in the coffee shops. Yes, and in their homes, which we didn't have a home. Like we would Got smoke you. in our hotel room, but it's like, you know, it was a kind of a decent hotel. We weren't sure. in a hostel or anything, so can't just be like, you know, hot boxing it. Yeah. Um anyway, this is the good part of the story. I found out just by like I guess how people found out about things back then flyers or yep. Uh, yep. maybe very early internet but I don't think we like went to an internet cafe not 99 that not at, while you're abroad at fat beats Amsterdam company flow was doing an in-store man I know it's crazy man listen I know so and this is fun this is like fun crusher uh, it, they were promoting little Johnny from the hospital okay and right, they were right. doing um like European festival dates. Okay. So it was, there was an upstairs and a downstairs. So it was, I'm like the hip hop guy. I'm like my girlfriend at the time was kind of into it. And then my cousins have no clue. Right. So, um, I'm like dragging everyone around on my little hip hop adventure. We go upstairs. I'm kind of flipping through records and it's kind of the same thing. I'm like, these are great records, but I could get these records back home. I'm on a, I'm literally living out of a backpack for the next five weeks. Weed budget is, is what it is. I don't want to carry around records for the next five weeks. So, I didn't buy anything, but we went downstairs and we're just like there. And Mr. Len is on the turntables and LP has is holding a microphone and he's just like standing there. And so we're in this little basement that's much smaller than the room we're in now. Wow. And I'm just kind of like, OK, who else was here? There? We go. How was so it a packed house or not? Not really. So 
there was a there was a really funny moment that I'll remember for the rest of my life. And uh, uh, Big Just was there, right? Mm-hmm. He's the other mm-hmm. rapper. Mm-hmm. And then uh, LP goes, uh, "Attention, attention! Um, I'm looking. If anyone can help me look out, there's a tall black guy that looks like PM Dawn, and we need him to start the show. And that was BMS." <laughs> So that's dope. I know it was hilarious. And then he came down the stairs and we're like as high as it is humanly possible to be at this point. And he came downstairs and he had those dreads kind of falling into his face and he hell looked like PM Dawn and we started cracking up. Oh my God. And then, um, also Mr. Liff was there. Okay. And and I had never seen or heard of Mr. Liff, but he kind of like made it known through his rhymes that he was from Boston. Yeah. So I always like kind of kept an eye out for Mr. Liff. And then when the guy, he came out and I was like, oh, Mr. Liff from Boston. Like, right. So my cousin, Michelle, again, not a hip hop head, but like hella cool person, like likes good music, took pictures either with like a Polaroid. I'm about to say with what? Or a disposable (laughs) camera. And I remember when we got home from the trip going through her pictures and I wrote on the pictures like Mr. Liff, Boston MC, El Producto, producer, company. That is flow. hilarious. Like to tell like an her, investigation. Like, like you had him on was. the wall taped up. Exactly. Right. Like put <laughs> some string. So they basically like cut up records and freestyled for like I I, I wanna say an hour. Right. And it was me, Melinda, these my two cousins, and then like 15 Amsterdamian right. backpack rap right. hip-hop heads. I it. didn't talk to any of them. Of course. Uh, cut to like <laughs> two hours later, we like have this great experience. I went up to LP afterwards, and I was like, yo, man, I came all the way out from the U.S. to go to this. And he was like, you did? And I was like, no, I just happened to be here. <laughs> but like, it made sense in my head when I was about to start talking. Anyway, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I love Vital Nerve. Right, like, right, it's right. good to meet you. You guys are sick. Like, right. you know. Um, another thing about this trip was that I had, uh, made cassettes and brought like 20 cassettes to like spread the gospel of underground hip hop. Thanks. Nate. So there'd be like a Saya and Yeshua song and like an arsonist song. And like, I'm assuming no one knows about hip hop. Right. And I did end up giving out cassettes and kind of making friends, mm-hmm. you know, the treasure I gave out was the tapes along the way. Um, anyway, a couple of hours later after we've had lunch and we're like been to three more coffee shops, we saw all of them. LP, Mr. Liff, BMS, all of them stumble out of a coffee shop and they looked so happy. And it's like, we were happy, they were happy, everybody right. was happy. And, Amsterdam. And, 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 hamster camp. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is my Fat Beats wow. story. Okay. Yeah. So, international um, hip hop, you know, retail spots still exist internationally for sure um they're they don't really have an amazing hip-hop selection but my favorite international record store is superfly records in paris okay they have fucking insane african records like they have the they have like the direct connect for the african records like again i've I've become such like a wuss about traveling and digging but um i had an original ophagia record in my hand of Mm -hmm. they're like it's kind of like nigerian psych rock okay um i love this record but i had a really good repress of it at home and like it was skated like african records the grading scale is totally different than normal Mm. records like destroyed is like vg plus you know what i mean because these records have just been through a lot like i picked this record up and i was like this is going to disintegrate in my hands like i can't take it home so now i'm if i know i'm gonna dig i bring a mailer and and a a couple of inserts at least i protect them in my suitcase like how it would be protected in the mail i have mailed records back to myself once 
um, on a digging trip that Dave and I took to Chicago. Mm-hmm. We had to mail things back because we had to leave. We were going to have to leave stuff at the airport because of the weight limits and mm-hmm. stuff. That was like a real crazy time. But um, anyway, yeah, interesting. I I always at least try to hit a record store when I'm there. I just was in Italy in April and we I went into like some little uh, record store in Milan for like ten seconds when we were like getting a drink in the tourist park. Cause they're like, you know, mm-hmm. discos. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I'll just go flip real quick. And then actually in, um, the Bon Marche, which is the, like one of the oldest department stores in the world. They, uh, it's like my happy place. I fucking love the Bon Marche. Their food section of the Bon Marche is like my favorite place in the world. I could stay in there for hours. Um, anyway, they had a little hi-fi, set up mm-hmm. thing and they had mm-hmm. a, they had a little box of records and i got into my digging mode and i started going like oh what record is this and oh i think i know the drummer from that and that and then um i kind of got up and stumbled away and lucia was like that guy was talking to you <laughs> like the salesman had been like trying to talk to me for like a couple of minutes and i zoned out you were so zoned that you yeah, didn't dude, even understand when i when i I'm looking for when I get into that mode. It's no like, shit. I, I'm just that's what I'm paying attention to. Okay. So anyway, that's jerk. Kinda, he yeah. remembers that story oh, a I different know. way. I know. Um, it's like Mademoiselle. Uh, you know, no, no, I'm <laughs> trying to make a joke. Mon- Monsieur, Monsieur. Monsieur Dickhead. dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> Jinx. Um. So yeah. So hip hop stores do still exist. Vinyl as a as a hot, sexy kind of. A consumer identifier of cool still exists, which is Urban Outfitters record section. Urban Outfitters record section is a perfect example. They'll of put this. stuff on like sixty percent off though, like that. Really? They don't care. They're, they they don't really care about it as music. They just care about it as commodities. So I'm gonna say you can get good records on Amazon. You can get good records at Target. You can yep. get good records yep. at Urban Outfitters. Yep. It's like you could get some Earl Sweatshirt record for like three bucks sometimes because none of the kids. And Urban Outfitters actually cared, and they just put s- stuff on like severe clearance. Interesting. It's actually kind of dope if you like happen to stumble across it at okay. the right time, or okay. hit their like online sales where it's like clearance is forty percent off. There'll be records for four bucks. It's like That's yeah, I, I could I could get that Cat Power record. Like I like that record. Right. For four right. bucks, it's a no brainer, even right. with shipping. That's wild, man. Yeah. But, but it's almost as if the vinyl, as an identifier of cool, is like. A, a bathroom piece of art at cost plus imports like totally. it's, it's there to be like hey these other items are cool and they look cooler with vinyl and everybody's listening them. to them on these like shitty crosley turntables yeah, that God. like you know yeah. cost 150 bucks and look like a suitcase yeah. um and yeah. have like have an unreplaceable needle and there's like things about it that aren't good but like honestly more records in the world You're and, for and it. they've yeah totally yeah. and it's the funniest thing about it is there are some there are a couple of cool people who collect records mm-hmm. most of the people who collect records are fucking nerds dude yeah. it's like that thing you think is making you look cool <laughs> doesn't yeah. necessarily well well i overheard and this wasn't too long ago i was in uh i was in rasputin's um record store just to kind of be like what is this about still what does this what does this do in 2019 so I was in there, and yeah, it was an insufferable group of guys going through like Brazilian records, and like, oh, I already have this, and oh, <laughs> this repress from blah blah blah, and I'm just like, dude, you guys are never getting laid. Not, those are, not with those this. are my people. Yeah, exactly. Um, people of people of Nate's tribe. So I, the the last kind of thing I'll say about that is um, the thing that is bad about this vinyl resurgence is new records cost like $36. It's dumb. So all records are expensive now. Yep. Like I'm really glad I got involved in records at a time where not everything was insane. Like I used to think a $40 record was like absurd. Like that would be like a, 
you know, it'd really, have to be some super special. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And now that's just like the normal price for a record, which is like, you know, the upswing in record prices has coincided with an upswing in my personal spending money because I became an adult, but it's like it's still not good. You know what no, I mean? No, no, and it and because it's these identifiers, these are people that I think are buying these records to put them up on a on a thing and never listen to them. I'm sure they listen to them, but perhaps they're not listening to them in the way we want them to listen to exactly. them, which like, you know, we're insufferable. I, I don't care, but yeah. like um I think it's just um I don't see it trending down, but I think you got some feedback for uh yeah, this yeah, question, we right? yeah, we we're doing this new segment where we we ask our listeners via Twitter to kind of chime in on the segment and we're going to break new ground and actually read the tweets and then attribute them to the people who tweeted them cuz That's we're, weird, but we're, I'm backing it. Yeah, we're often just ripping off content <laughs> and not giving people uh not giving people their props. So the question that uh I put out on Twitter earlier today was will record stores be around in 20 years? So that that was the question. Will record stores be around in 20 years? Let's start with you, Nate. What do you think? Of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. This wave could last 20 years. Like really? they, they were supposed to have died in the, you know, 80s. They mm-hmm. were supposed to have died and in the early do. 2000s. Yeah. They never do. They always keep the, coming back. Listening to records is the best way to listen to music like in terms of a physical um artifact. So yeah. it's just that's that's not going anywhere and then you have you know your kind of hardcore record collecting people and then some of these people like the kids you're talking about who just want to like put a taylor swift record up in their bathroom will get the bug yeah like it happens it'll come back it'll come back i i think in part because unlike some of these other formats um they're the physical aspect of a record it's the coolest format to pick up and like kind of holding your hand it's large but it's thin it's it's hard but somehow malleable like you know vinyl, very malleable <laughs> yeah especially in your trunk um okay so I, I i put that question out because you know i i'm definitely one of these people one of my favorite um restaurants is closing at the end of the month um in japantown and i was there and i'm like every retail thing dies like there's Subaru? always yeah yeah, we went for our last. Uh, yeah, our kind of, and I kind of looked at the server, and she kind of looked at me like, "Yeah, this is it, bro." It was hella busy when we went. Yeah, I think everybody was there. Talking yeah, they're having like, their oh. death knell. So kind of sad, but if you live in the Bay Area, you just become accustomed to it. My favorite uh, Vietnamese coffee spot. Um, I the last time I walked out of there like three or four weeks ago, I guess I said goodbye instead of just bye. And when I went back yesterday, the lady was like, "Oh, I thought you moved out of the area." Because when people say goodbye, it usually means they're leaving the Bay Area. I was like, I want to cry right now. Also, give me a large. <laughs> um, so, so retail trends are kind of like wild. Um, uh, you know, these different ones kind of fold and things come on. But when asked this question, um, our timeline uh, was pretty unanimous in this and kind of agreeing with you, Nate, um, that they're going to be around. I'll start by reading a, a tweet from... Young old head, um, not to be confused with old old head. Uh, <laughs> and this person's response, because I guess I shouldn't gender them. This person's response was, yes, they're the new cool thing for hipsters to like. They may not have the same broad appeal that they once had, but the people that frequent them will be much more invested in their success. Record stores and vinyl as a medium has traded breath for fan base and depth. 
Okay. But thank you for your thoughtful response, um, young old head. Uh, who is this person? Y'all Twitter names are kind of difficult just to be saying. <laughs> um, okay. This is a, here's a pro tip. Um, yes, brick and mortar is going to be refined, but sure it's staying for at least 20 or more years. Um, our, one of our favorite uh, Twitter followers and contributor to the program, uh, Sun Ra, whose, whose Twitter aliases are amongst some of the better ones that you're going to find. Um, I have to say I don't understand this one. This new one has to have some kind of like French-Canadian thing <laughs> that I don't get. So, Sun, maybe you can help us understand. He was uh, Kawhi Leonard Cohen for a long time. That and was I, great. I, yeah, I really appreciate some of his... Uh, his alias he had a great one with Aphex Twin, too, that I can't remember. The Dos, Dos Aphex Twin. Dos Aphex Twin. Just, ah, uh, uh, chef's kiss for, uh, <laughs> for Sun Ra. His response was, they will, but instead of being patronized by 40-something record geeks, thank you, it'll be 60-something record geeks, Nate. So they'll probably <laughs> be the equivalent of ham radio shops. God damn it. That's hilarious. And it reminded me of something someone told me about. They had to go to a model train store recently. Oh. And they were when they were telling the story, it was kind of a story about how the guys who worked there were jerks. And they, like, didn't help this person. And I was like, I, I, you basically went to the record store. <laughs> and, like, but you went in, like, my buddy... Jeff, who I worked with at the record store for many years, and I have shared this inside joke. Every Christmas, there's like parents who come in with the kids yeah. list, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you know Jay Retard or the Retards. That was like a kind of like popular pop punk thing in the yeah. mid 2000s yeah. from Nashville. And this guy came in, he was like a very, he like looked like a news anchor, like just very well put together older man with this great deep voice. And he's like, Pardon me, do you have any Jay Retard? <laughs> And it was like the funniest thing anyone's ever said to me. And I was like, yeah, man, punk indie R, you know, I'll oh, show you. Gosh. But he's like, Jay Retard. Oh, was j it just like killed me. So anyway, um, <laughs> shout to Sun Ra. That was a great answer. It's probably yes. true. But I do think they're almost in every city, like the record store guy knows what's up. Like if you it, if as, you're part a, of the as culture, a cultural concierge, if yeah. you will. So yeah. like when when I used to work at Streetlight, like cats would come down and dig, and they'd be like, "Where should I eat?" Yeah, and it's like I yep. always had a good answer. Yep, or, like, or where to get the weed pre dispensary. What yeah. other shops should I go to in this yep. area? It's like go to this one, go to that yep. one. Don't go to this one. Like yep. this place is dry right now. Like, but this place just can't. Oh, you know, you should do the thing. And then um, this came up in my um, the this will be two or three episodes ago now. But my interview with John Sclute, who was a record store proprietor and had a mm -hmm. ton of interesting things to say on this subject. He was he ran Good Records, which was mm -hmm. one of the best shops in NYC for years. And like mega producers would come in like he had a cool story about showbiz and a couple of other cats who came wow. in to dig. And it's like, for whom do you pull out the backstock or the, who, the who private you, reserve? Who do you give access yeah. to your your room? Right. Yeah. It's like the, you know, introducing was made mostly off samples of the back room of like a couple record stores in the Sacramento area. Mm -hmm. And it's like you have to be super cool to get that access um, speaking it, of that, I want to give a shout out to Justin Torres, who is one of the premier collectors in the Bay, and he's always flossing these amazing um, finds on Instagram. And it, it just seems like he's got the connects at the flea market still. I don't even go to the flea market anymore because really? it's like, one, I don't like waking up early on the weekends. And two, like, I never find anything. Right. He seems to Socks be consistently finding like 
really good records. So there's there's an art to like maintaining those relationships mm-hmm. and to like being like a, a come up guy and like a reseller who's not a dick. Well, it's it because the 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 face to face retail is a relationship. It's relation. I I think of it as like how I I when I go to the farmers market is different than the fucking supermarket. Like the people there, like this is my product. I might chop it up with you. You come every week, and so. Maybe in that sense, I think the the record store, especially the like hip hop leaning kind of digging leaning ones, will kind of always have a, a place because it's it's a place where you can go and find your tribe of other people who are are really interested in collecting. And probably as long as capitalism's around, there's always going to be the collecting of some shit. For like, sure, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I've been a collector my entire life. I collected comic books, I collected baseball cards, I collected bottle caps, I yep. collected Transformers. Like, yep, it's just like it. The records kind of they're not the I, I'm like trying to work this out of my head as I speak. Is it the last thing I collected? Mine, mine. I I'm not gonna say I wasn't I wasn't a super heavy collector. Worked at the record store, got a, a wild discount on records, inherited records from folks. So, I love, once yeah. people find out you are into records, especially when you're younger. I I was coming up at the time, and it sounds like you were coming mm-hmm. up at the time. People just wanted to get rid of. I, them. I got whole collections. Yeah. I, my step pops was was a DJ for a time, um, and yeah, just different people. Somebody passed away. Somebody, you know, people are kind of downsizing. So that's kind of where my collection comes from. But I I realize that I get I can only really get a boner for books. <laughs> so now I'm like the, I'm in the recycled kind of booked you know use book thing for whatever reason and buying more books than i can actually fucking read uh there's this thing and we can talk about it off air that uh, my wife lucia gets it's from book passage uh, which is a well-known bookstore you can get a subscription service for signed first copies or first editions of hyper modern books like she she's gotten some sick ones dude okay she just got the new ocean vong she got the there there um, okay tommy orange, orange like yeah. so you like if you're starting a book collection like and and they, they send you one a month it's, it's like a book of the month exactly okay. it's okay. like a book of the month club but they're signed first edition wow. so it's not the copy she reads she'll read it from the library but she'll stock and have this that. signed copy have and some that. of them have become valuable it's an interesting wow. game the book game is like i don't understand the condition stuff like it's a it's a different kind of thing that's kind of like a little like side hustle that lucia can have for for the future you know that's what i mean dope. she knows more way more about books than i know about records but when we are in a place that has both, you guys are the, the super team of uh <laughs> of, of collecting uh cultural ephemera here i like it i yeah. like it so we uh we obviously like record stores as you can tell and we were able to speak to dj eclipse uh who in addition just to being a crazy DJ producer, like an re- excellent yeah. producer, yeah. a fantastic DJ, um, who's still on the radio, cutting up records and yeah. having cats freestyle and just like just pl- he, he. I had him plug his show at the end because I love his show. Rap Real is out of control dude. with DJ yeah. Riz. It, he was just. I was like, can you? You know, you guys are gonna hear it, so you'll hear my shitty version of it first. I'm like, can you describe the show? He's like, it's hip hop. I'm like, yeah, okay. I know. And there we yeah, go. And, but it is though. He's yeah. he's saying it, and he's saying it in, in this essential way. Yeah. The hip hop radio show is a whole nother kind of phenomenon. Well, um, yeah. Which in a future episode, on a future episode of Dad by Rap Pod, but right now we will share our interview with DJ Eclipse, Dad by Rap Pod. Uh-huh. 
Dad Bod Rap Pod. Uh, we are here with DJ Eclipse. Um, let's dive into your history a little bit. I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, your history with third base, for those who don't know. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, Search was actually the person that I met that that was my conduit into even getting up back up north. Mm-hmm. Um, I met Search. I was living down in Columbia, South Carolina at the time. I was working at this record store called Sounds Familiar, and uh, Search was on a promo retail tour, um, hitting up different markets, um, getting ready to promote his solo album, Return of the Product. Mm. Um, so he came through the store. I, I knew he was you know, coming through. It was scheduled. And so when he came through, uh, I, uh, I name-dropped uh, T-Ray, Todd Ray, because me and Todd uh, were already friends and were working together in Columbia, South Carolina, before T Ray had went up north to start working on music again. So T Ray had produced basically half of Search's solo album. So I mentioned T Ray to Search. Search is like, oh yeah, Todd, of course. You know, he did the album, and mm. you know, we start talking. I told him that me and T had been doing beats together. So he wanted to hear, you know, some of my stuff. So I let him hear a bunch of my beats and we just clicked. And so, you know, from that point on, he was just like, why don't you come up to New York with me? And um, I want you to DJ for me and I want you to produce. Um, so I was like, cool. So, you know, I, I took the opportunity and um, I, I started traveling with him, doing shows along with DJ Riz because um, he had wanted uh, search wanted two DJs. And uh, we started doing shows and promoting the solo album. And, and then, you know, we had started working on what was going to be the, the, the follow up uh, solo album from search. And that was kind of like the beginning of me coming to New York and, and just kind of getting my feet wet. Okay. Okay. Um. You know, what were your first uh, impressions of New York, and then let's let's um, transition to a little bit about the uh, your years at Wild Pitch as well. Sure. Um. Well, for me, I mean, I'm from Providence, Rhode Island, mm. so I I left to go down to South Carolina, and the difference from between South Carolina and Rhode Island was drastic, and so once I was kind of old enough to get out of the South, you know, uh, I was already taking trips up to New York from about '88. Um, so I'd go up as often as I could and just go shopping, go to record stores and stuff like that. Uh, so once me and search connected, which was around probably like 91, 92, um, once I went back up, you know, there and was, and, and was stationed there, um, it was, you know, it was familiar cause I'd already been taking trips there. It was also, you know, I mean, obviously it was a lot busier than Rhode Island, but it was still the North, you know what I'm saying? It was still, that was, it was Rhode Island and New York were a lot more similar than let's say South Carolina and New York or South Carolina and Rhode Island. So I was just happy to be back up North and, you know, being with search allowed me to kind of meet a lot of people right off the bat. Um, and connect with a lot of a lot of cool people. So, you know, it was it was definitely overwhelming in terms of just uh, the atmosphere. You know, I think back now to a lot of the things that I did when I first got here, and it's like almost like it's hard to to pinpoint where they were. I remember for, I remember going to a party um, when I first came to New York, and now I realize that that party was Soul Kitchen, which happened at mm. SOBs. But like. As funny as as much as I know SOB like the back of my hand now, I didn't know it you know at all back then. So it took me a while to realize when I think back that oh that was the place that I had went to see that party. Mm. Uh, so it took me a while to get familiar with everything, the train system of course, all that stuff. Um, but then you know once I kind of 
got settled, you know, I just uh, I started, you know, making my mark. I mean, you know, from DJing with Search and producing to then um, through Search and Riz meeting Stretch and Bobito and um, becoming cool with Stretch. And that allowed me to fill in for him when he started getting busy and couldn't do his own radio show. So that was like that was the next big thing for me after search was actually filling in for stretch. Cause it happened, mm. you know, pretty frequently. And so that helped me get my name out, um, throughout New York, uh, and, and like, you know, get it as, as a DJ and all that stuff. So that, that helped with that. And then the next thing would have been when search decided that he was slowing down from be- being an artist and then wanting to do more of the executive thing. He took the job at wild pitch, mm. um, as like a VP over there. And being that, you know, we were all in tow, he was, he told Stu, he's like, yo, I got this guy who's great. You know, like he, he's good at anything you want to give him. So basically they had a retail job opening up at Wild Pitch. And so I met with Stu Fine um, a couple of times actually. And, uh, you know, and he, he liked me enough to give me a shot. And so I, I came on at Wild Pitch as the national director of retail promotion. Oh, right on. Can you tell us uh, about some of the artists that were um, on the label at the time, and kind of, do you, if you have any stories, kind of, you know, it's a pretty. We have a pretty hardcore hip hop audience, so nothing, <laughs> nothing too obscure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, um, uh, I mean, at that time, uh, Main Source was there, but it was the the new rendition of Main Source with Mikey D as the front man. Um, Lodge Pro had already, you know, made his way out. Uh, and so that record, we were, we were like that record, I think actually had just come out, um, when we were kind of coming into the offices. So we were like working it, but it was already kind of done. And then what else was going on at that time? Um, there was, uh, the two biggest things that we worked while I was there was the coup album, um, yeah, Genocide and Juice, and then um, also the OC Word Life album. Mm. Um, so now, before I kind of get into the OC part, you know, the coup obviously was already there at Wild Pitch. They had already put out stuff before. Um, so really, honestly, when we kind of came in, it was the main source project, uh, the coup, and Entice. Those were like the things that were already there when we walked in. And then what we did was we brought to the table a bunch of other artists. And so Search brought OC. Um, I had brought in this group called TND, which was Tony and Dave, that ended up becoming All Natural from mm. Chicago. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, it was like a bunch of the stuff that we brought in was just as demo deals. So mm. TND was a demo deal. Um, we brought in C style who was part of total pack, which was like a crazy underground, you know, NYC group that was always on stretch and Bobito. Um, we, we brought him in. So there was C style, there was TND, um, search brought in Jesse West, uh, to do some stuff. And we also had, who else was there? There was, um, oh man. Oh, there was, a. Uh, these kids from from uh, Tacoma, Washington, called Foul Play. Uh, we brought them in, and Swinging Bamboo, we brought in as well. Uh, and those, I think, were all the artists that we brought in under our umbrella to bring in there for like you know most of them were demo deals. OC was actually straight up signed, um, 
And also, I was also, you know, curious about some of the past artists that were there. So I was mm-hmm. bugging Stu about Chill Rob G. And I was like, you know, I was like, mm-hmm. you know, what's what's going on with Rob? And he mm-hmm. was like, you know, he's like, Robbie's a good guy. He's like, you know, he he always hits me up and like, you know, sends me some stuff. But like, I don't know, I'm just not quite sure. And you know, so he kind of like gave me his info. So I, I I hit Rob up and I was just like, yo, I was like, you know, what are you working on? Let's let's let me know. And so um, I started kind of hanging with him for a minute and was getting new joints produced from 45 King and uh, Lil Louis Vega uh, for, for his projects to kind of see if like, you know, he was going to make it back out. Um, so those were things that we were working on at the time. Uh, and then the OC was the next big thing. To, to come out and so we were working that and then uh it was during kind of like that time when the, there was a problem with main source they weren't happy with with being at the label and so they wanted off and Stu ended up ultimately giving them you know off the label uh, and mind you this is also coming after the umcs did the same thing about wanting off the label that mm-hmm. that was done before we even got there mm-hmm. so they they were already off the label so a lot of the the acts that were already at wild pitch were starting to leave and so we were bringing in new talent but unfortunately at the same time their parent company emi was like okay all your big names are leaving uh and so they were like they weren't happy with you know keeping the checks coming with all this new talent and so they kind of like i guess gave Stu the ultimatum of like well you know if you're going to keep doing if, if you're losing all these ix then we're not going to be able to keep doing distributing you mm. um and so Stu was like you know he didn't want to go back to being an independent um so he decided just to, to close up shop you know which was like summer of 95 so i, I think mm. i was there like a year and a half before, right up until the point of closing Crazy. I would love to hear those all-natural demos someday. (laughs) Um, Can we kind of move forward in time a little bit and talk about Fat Beats and how you got involved with that? Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, it kind of goes right where we left off. Um, So summer of 95 is – June of 95 is when Wild Pitch closed. Uh, Right around that time, shortly before uh, – I'm sorry, not around that time. Let's go back a year. Summer of 94, I receive a fax – that says, you know, new hip hop store, vinyl store opening up, you know, uh, 9th Street between 1st and 2nd, you know, and it just, it just like the flyer was just like, it was just a hip hop looking flyer. And like, <laughs> just it was just something about it that was like, I have to go check this out. I mean, it was also my job, but it was just like, I just wanted to see what it was about. So I grabbed search and uh, we went there for like, you know, the, the grand opening and we walked downstairs into this little basement shop and they didn't even have the records on the wall yet. You know, they had uh, graph writers in there still putting up pieces. Wow. There was a DJ spinning. Joe, the owner, was breaking in the middle of the floor. <laughs> I mean, it was it was basically every element of hip hop was happening at that moment. And so we just hung out there and kicked it with Joe. And like, you know, Joe was obviously a fan of third base and search. So, you know, he was happy to see him. And um, it was just a cool vibe. And so after that meeting, um throughout throughout the next year of me working at wild pitch i always did the best i could to bring business to joe so i think the first in-store that joe even had was oc um which i had set up for him and then um word life uh, what's up <laughs> i'm just making a joke i said word life uh, oh yeah <laughs> and then uh um what you call it? every time i would go to buy something i would buy from him 
So if I needed to buy like a CD or if there was some vinyl I didn't have, I would just go to him and buy it specifically from him as opposed to going to any other stores. So I was in there like once a week, you know, or every other week, just kind of like shopping and hanging out. And, you know, plus I was also spinning on Scratch and Bob's show at the time. So it was just like, it was like a extended family thing. It's like, mm-hmm. we talk radio, we talk records and all that stuff. Um, and so what happened was once Wild Pitch folded, Joe had asked me if I wanted to give him a hand on the weekends working at the store, because at that point it was just him primarily and uh, Ryan who were there like, you know, seven days a week. And they had a couple of like one or two other people that would come in here and there. Um, but he wanted someone that could really like hold down the weekend so that he could stay home and have a break. <laughs> and so my, my original thought was, okay, well, yeah, most definitely I'll give you a hand, but this isn't what I'm thinking long-term, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to jump back into another label gig somewhere, but until that happens, I'll, I'll help you out on the weekends. Mm. And, um, so that was like probably, you know, July of 95 when I started working there. And then lo and behold, a year later, I mean, we were just blowing up, you know I mean? Like the store was, uh, was doing so well that we I started making plans to move to a, a, a bigger location. Um, the uh, we opened up Fat Beats Distribution, we opened up um, Fat Beats LA, we opened up Fat Beats Amsterdam. It's like all this stuff happened between like the summer and fall of '96, mm. and so at that point I was I was there at that point five days a week. Mm, wow. So I, you know I was there full time, and so it just it just felt at home at that point, and like so there was no need for me to kind of go anywhere else, you know. So I just I just stayed there, <laughs> and that was it. Okay, okay. You know, um, certainly there's all this crazy uh, freestyle footage, um, you know, from uh, the basement uh, sessions. Um, were you there for all of those, or or also is there are there any that you particularly um, you know that stand out for you? Not a lot of the basement ones. No. Oh, okay. uh, a lot of those ones, um, Joe used to do a public access show, mm. um, and so he used to film a lot of stuff and put it up on the, on the public access show. So he has a lot of footage of the basement stuff. I don't have a lot at all of the basement stuff. Mm. Most of my footage is from the 6th Avenue location. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, but uh, – I mean, you know, there'd be people like, you know, Red Man that would come hang out and, and, and he'd bring like Diesel Don, you know, and they would be in there. And I know there's footage of that, you know, other mm. than that, it was pretty much like um, a lot of times it would be like all the indie kids, you know, it would be right. like, you know, the beginnings of, you see, the, you know, the arsonists would be coming through there and then mm. there would be uh, uh, natural elements would be hanging out there. You know, LP from Cold Flow would be hanging out there. Um, just all these people would just come and just hang out. Um, so the, the, the ciphers, although there were some, they really weren't as popular until the sixth Avenue location. That's okay. when like most of those ciphers really started happening. The, the stuff prior was more, all the basement stuff was more people just kind of hanging out. Mm. Um, there might've been some, some, some DJs, you know, pro- primarily getting down that you, he might have more footage of. Uh, and then obviously like there would be some, some in stores that he did. And actually the first fat beats DJ battle was held at the basement location. Um, so I know he has footage of that, but most of like the cypher sessions were all, uh, at the sixth Avenue location. As the guy running the store, were you ever kind of like, Hey guys, can you move outside? I'm trying to sell some records in here. (laughs) Oh, most definitely. I, I, I would never hesitate to tell someone what they got to do. Trust me. It's like if something, you know, whether it's like 
whether it's the customers themselves that like just want to stand in front of the doorway, it's like, oh, you got to move it in, move it all, move all the way to the back. You know, I need to keep this area clear. It's like I was always, you know, making sure that the business was straight. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that, that always happened is making sure that, uh, whatever people were doing, that it was, it was coinciding with, you know, the livelihood of the store. Uh, do you have any favorite releases from the label or the distro that, uh, come to mind? Hmm. Um, wow. Uh, I mean, I think that, um, when, when we were in our heyday in like, you know, the, the, the late nineties, mid to late 90s 97 to like 99 era um there was just a great period of time where there was just so much good stuff coming out and like i i can remember when like you know the wall would consist of like missing links mia um you know ditc day one or the enemy um uh stuff like most deaf universal magnetic you know um i mean nonfiction. i shot reagan it was just so many great records that were coming out during that time frame uh that were all just i can remember selling them at the same time you know and like uh it was just all great records yeah but those those ones i mentioned you know freddie fox the first freddie fox one with um uh, premiere and, and mm-hmm. mr walt on production um yeah those are some of the, the ones that like were definitely like you know because you're also <clears throat> i was talking to prima about this the other day you know it, it, it was unusual to see someone of his caliber producing for indie records you know so mm-hmm. although he had premiere had done uh come clean on guru's label originally that was still like that was their own thing it wasn't like he was producing for someone else it was part of their own camp but i think the first record that i recall him producing that was straight up independent was the crumb snatcher closer to god mm. and i remember when we heard that record it was just like it was just unbelievable that he did that record because we really hadn't seen that on the independent level before. And so then when you have something like the Freddie Fox record, which was like a, you know, a premiere production, and that's when you start seeing more people like a premiere and a Pete rock and, you know, Alchemist's name was, was starting to pop then. So you just had all these, you know, these great producers that were now taking their major label talent, and giving it to the independent scene. Uh, and so that's, that's when we really started seeing it flourish. <clears throat> that's awesome. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your show rap is out of control with DJ Riz and how people can connect with that and kind of what the format is and like, you know, just kind of plug it a little bit. Yeah. Rap is out of control, uh, is basically a continuation of the typical mix show. You know, I mean, Riz started doing radio like nine, 1990, um, in, in Long Island, uh, doing college radio first with um, Jeff Foss, uh, and then also after that on uh, with Wildman Steve on BAU, and then from that point he moved on to NYU with Mayhem, um, and then after that me and Riz started on NYU. Um, so college radio and the mix shows, you know, it's like we always kept that format of dopest music, the best skills we could have. Um, and the best guests and interviews that we could get. And so Rap is Our Control is a continuation of all that. You know, it's, it's, it's a part of all those shows. It's part, it's part of, you know, Molly and Red show. It's part of The Awesome 2. It's part of Stretch and Bob. It's just taking the best elements of what we all loved from all these shows when we were kids and, and, and keeping the tradition going. And so, you know, when you listen to our show, it's basically, you know, two hours of just, you know, 
the dopest music we feel is out there and the dopest guests and me and Riz, you know, cutting records up still and, and, and mixing and blending and, you know, giving it to you in a format that, you know, that's creative, you know, I mean, it, it's hip hop. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're all about. And that's what we, we you know, we want to make sure that that maintains and lives on. Um, so we do our best to make sure that people can check us out every Sunday night, 10 to 12 on Shave 45 on Sirius XM for Rap is All I Control. Nice. All right, man. Well, you know what? You've had a, a crazy long history, and you know I've have had your hands in many awesome projects. Um, we just want to thank you for your time, man. Um, DJ, no, Clips. thank you guys. Yeah, congratulations on twenty five years of Fat Beats, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I try to listen to Rap Is Out of Control every Sunday. I love what you guys do. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right, take it easy, man. Peace. All right, fellas. Peace.